Now, we're going to get into God's Word. Uh, Dave just read it, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. If you didn't already grab a Bible, do that now. Grab a Bible, pull it up on your app. Uh, we're going to start there. We're going to end up in Psalm 51, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this as we go. But we are in this series, as you see over here and you see on the screen, how people change. And, and we're talking about how big change happens through small steps. Now, typically, it's not one huge dramatic event that changes your life, although God can do that. He often brings about change through, through small daily practices that you build into your life and the Holy Spirit uses to make you more like Jesus. And I think as we talk about this series, all of us like the idea of change, right? Like there's some things about your life you'd like to change, right? There's some things about our world you, you would like to change. But when we actually come down to it and there's things we have to give up and there's things we have to start doing that we haven't been doing, we're all a little bit uncomfortable with that, right? There's a process to that and an uncomfortableness to that, even a little bit of fear in that for all of us, no matter who you are, with change. I think you see this most vividly in a show that's taking over our nation, Marie Kondo, tidying up. And if, if you're tracking, you can finish this sen sentence for me. Get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy. Some of you guys have been watching that show, right? <laughs> now, we've been watching that show. My wife put me on this. I don't know why, what she was trying to tell me about my cleanliness. But uh, we started watching this show. And as we're getting into this show... You see all these different episodes, and, and really there's a constant thread. Everybody is freaked out about getting rid of their stuff, right? They signed up for the show, so they know it's coming, but when it comes to that magazine that is sentimental in their life, they're like, I don't know if I can get rid of that magazine. I mean, I've had that magazine for so long. Like, every once in a while, I go back to it, and it's just like, get rid of the magazine, right? And you're, you're watching this. We're sitting in our bedroom or, or in our living room on a couch watching other people fearful of change. And it never fails. We're just kind of like, wow, they got some issues. <laughs> like, wow. I mean, it's a magazine, bro. Get rid of it. Like, what's wrong with you? And we're just like, you know, in our self-righteous seat of judgment watching this show. And, and it never fails. My wife will say, well, you know, we kind of have something like that in our house. You know, you, you kind of have something like that in your closet, and I'm like, hey, there's no need to talk about me here. <laughs> Watching the show. Like, well, that, see, you, it's, but that's not the same as their thing. Like, this, I actually do need it, and I don't need to get rid of it. Do not take this from me, woman. Right? <laughs> and, and you realize something, and you realize it when you watch that show or you see other people trying to change. It's, it's a whole other story when you have to change. You can watch things in the world. You can see people do stuff and celebrities and you're like, how could you do that? It seems so crazy. And you're like, oh, I kind of do that myself. How could you not give that up? Well, I don't know if I want to give things up. And, and, and it all comes down to this difficult, scary change when you have to implement it in your life. And it's not ethereal. It's practical in your own life. And listen, that show is an example of how hard that is in your home. How much harder is it in our hearts, right? When there's beliefs, there's practices, there's behaviors, there's mindsets that we've had in us for five months, maybe even 50 years, 
and you realize that's got to change, and it's scary, and it's hard, and it's difficult, right? So as we talk about this series and how people change, today we're going to get to the root of that. We're going to get to the heart of change, which is this word called repentance, that this is God's prescription for you to give those things up that are so hard to give up, that are so ingrained in your heart that you're like, I don't know if I can let that go. How do I let this sin go? I mean, it's just what I'm used to running to. How do I get rid of this in my life? I mean, put on love, patience, kindness, peace, all these things. How do I put that? I don't know if I can be that kind of person. How does all that happen? It's difficult. It's scary. It happens through repentance. And so we're going to talk about what repentance means and also what it looks like. And so that's our first point as we get started here. It's the heart of repentance. What, what really is repentance? What's the heart of it? We're going to see that 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Paul starts off like this. The apostle Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you only for a while. And then he says, as it is, I rejoice. As you just look at that, you should pick up a little bit of like, Paul seemed kind of crazy. Like, does he really know how he feels? Like, I mean, I don't regret that I've grieved you. Well, actually, I do kind of regret it. Like, which one is it, Paul? Do you regret it or do you not regret it? And what he's getting at and what he goes on to talk about is the difference between a godly grief and a worldly grief. That, that he's saying, hey, listen, I'm not glad that you're sad. I'm not happy that you're grieving right now. But I don't really regret it. Why? Because it's producing something. Right? You're not just stuck in your sadness and sorrow. It's moving you out of that sadness and sorrow to life, to repentance, to change. And so Paul begins to lay out for us, there's a godly grief and there's a worldly grief. Now, what is worldly grief? Paul hints at it here. If you look at it, he contrasts this, this godly grief. It produces something. He says it can lead to salvation with no regret. But then there's the worldly grief, on the other hand, that produces death. There's no life at the end of that. Why? Because you just stay in that grief. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce new life. You just stay in that sorrow and in that sadness. Now, what does that look like? I can give you a, a few examples of that that we see in scripture, that we see in life. It's that when we see our sin, there's some ways we can respond in worldly grief. We just feel sad, we just feel kind of bad, but it doesn't ever produce change or repentance in our life. I think the first way is we can hide. We can hide. We see our sin and we immediately try to conceal it. We try to hide from it. We see that in Proverbs 28, 13. It says this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Now, not only when, when seeing your sin against a holy God, you try to hide it, not only is that wrong, but it's just flat silly, right? I mean, if you think about, if you believe that God is, is all-knowing, which we do, that God sees everything before time began, he saw your past, your present, and your future, including your sin, including the bad things that you have done, including the bad things that you have thought about doing. That God sees all that. God's infinite. He's all wise. He's all knowing. He sees your sin. And for us to think, I can just 
hide that. I mean, that, that lustful thought, I'm going to just act like that didn't happen. I mean, that, that greed and that act of greed, I'm just going to just put that over here where nobody else can see it. And God, we can pretend we don't see it together and, and it'll all work out okay. I think of uh, that episode on The Office where Kevin, one of the accountants, made his special chili. And if you've ever seen The Office, you remember this episode. He walks in the office with this giant pot of chili, right? And he's so excited about it. And what happens? He spills it all on the floor. And it's chili. And it's on a carpet like this. And yet, in his moment of desperation, what does he do? He gets some paper and tries to scrape it back in the pot. Now, we all watch that and we're like, that ain't going to work. Like, they're going to see the chili on the floor. They're probably going to see in the pot some stuff that doesn't belong in chili. Right? And yet, that's the picture of us when we sin and we try to hide it. It's foolish. It's silly. Like, you can't hide your sin from an all-knowing, all-powerful God. He sees it. And yet, in our worldly grief, we, we feel bad about it, right? Christian or not, there, there's something, you're like, there's something off. Like, I shouldn't have done that. I probably should have done this. And you're like, I'll just, I'll just scrape it up. Like, I don't like it. And that's all you really know is, is I don't like it and I want to put it away. And that's, that's worldly grief that Paul talks about. The second thing we do often is we rationalize our sin. So we see our sin and it it comes to light a little bit, and we just start to think, well, you know, I mean, my family upbringing, I mean, it was just different. I mean, other people, they had Christian parents. I didn't have that. I mean, my, my job, I mean, it's just really stressful right now, and I'm working 60 hours a week, and the pressure, I mean, Tim, you wouldn't believe. I mean, I just, I got to get greedy just to keep up with these guys. And, and that worldly grief, you, you know something's off, which is why you try to explain it away, right? And you rationalize it. We see this at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, the first sin ever committed. God comes to Adam and says, hey, Adam, you ate of that tree? What does he say? Well, it's the woman you gave me. Well, she gave me the fruit. And we try to rationalize. Well, you see, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand the peer pressure in my life. That's why I sinned. And there's some grief with that, right? We know something's off. Like Adam didn't say like, heck yeah, God, I ate that apple and I'm proud of it. I'd do it again. That's not what he says. Because there's some grief. There's some sorrow over the sin, but it's worldly grief and it blames and it deflects. We see that when we compare ourselves to others. Like maybe you do have that lustful thought, but you look at somebody else and you're like, well, that guy's cheating on his wife. I didn't do that. You know something's off, there's some grief, but you rationalize the grief as you blame, as you compare, right? That's, that's the worldly grief that Paul is talking about. The third thing, third example is we modify our behavior. There's some grief, like we know, hey, there's some things in my life I don't like, they're not godly, they're not producing righteousness in my life, and so... I'm just going to modify the surface level things. I'm not going to really look at the heart and see where that's rooted, but I'm just going to change some of my behavior, right? I'm going to stop lying. Like, I'm going to do it. This year is going to be the year. Get that practice out of my life. 
I'm gonna be truthful, but we just address the surface level sin and we modify. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23 where he calls the religious Pharisees of the day whitewashed tombs. Why does he call them that? Because they look good on the outside. They're whitewashed, but they're a tomb in their heart. They're dead. They're wicked. Nothing has been uprooted that's causing that sin. They haven't taken time to examine the the issues of their heart that are leading to that sin. And so there's a godly grief that produces something. There's a, a worldly grief that doesn't produce anything. It's a dead end. And it's when we try to hide our sin, rationalize our sin. It's when we try to just modify our external behavior. And what Paul is getting at, and the reason he says, I rejoice because of your grief, is because the only way to deal with with sin is to have a grief that leads you to repentance. Repentance. Now, what is repentance? I think a lot of us have heard about repentance, whether you've grown up in the church or not. And maybe when, when I say that word, repentance, you get some visuals in your mind. Like right away, you start thinking about that Old Testament prophet who seemed really upset. Seemed like he had a bad day, right? And, and in that Old Testament prophecy, in that book of the Bible, all you see is this yelling, angry, everybody's going to hell. There's the wrath of God is coming for you. And when you think about repentance, that's immediately what comes to your mind. Maybe you think of a street preacher, Downtown Phoenix, you're walking along trying to have a nice dinner with your spouse or your friends, and you see these guys on the side of the road with megaphones, and they're just yelling at people, repent, repent. And so when you hear the word repentance, that's kind of what you think of. And so I want to clarify, what is repentance? As we see it in this passage, it's the word in the original language, metanoia. That word means to change. It means a comprehensive change in one's orientation. It's that your your thinking changes and also your direction changes, right? And it's a twofold change. It's a turning away from your sin. So as you see that lust, pride, greed, gossip, as you see that stuff even in your heart, that's not of God, that's not righteousness that he's called me to, and it's a turning away from that But it's not just like a turning, well, then towards what I want to do or a self-help lesson. It's a turning to God. And it's replacing all the effort, all the time, all the treasure that you're investing into that sin. It's turning and replacing that with God. That's repentance. It's this transformative action that you take in your life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in which you, you begin to change and it's rooted in your your head, heart, and your hands, right? It starts in your head. We see this in Romans chapter 12, that you are transformed, how? The renewing of your mind. Your thinking starts to change, how you think about God, how you think about life, how you think about the sin in your life, and and that repentance starts to happen in your head. And then it filters down to your heart. You begin to grieve, you have sorrow. It's not that you look at your sin and then logically think, oh, that's bad. Let me make a spreadsheet. 
No, you, you begin to grieve. Like, that hurts my heart that I would do that to my spouse, that I would do that to a friend, that I would say that, or that I would not do that. Ultimately, that I would do that before a holy God, that I would offend a holy and righteous God, and that, that grieves our heart, and you start to see your sin like God sees your sin, and it brings grief. And so it starts in your mind, it, it continues to your heart, but then it doesn't stop there. It leads to your hands. That it leads to, okay, I know this should be different. I know I don't want to go down this path. It leads to destruction. And that hurts. And I'm sorry that I've hurt these other people and there's grief. And then it's not just, okay, well, let me finish my breakfast and go about my day. No, it's, how am I going to change this? God, how can you help me change this in my life? God, change this in my life. And you start to develop an action plan. And you make a commitment to change. It's a comprehensive change of one's orientation. That is repentance. Now, as I say all that, that's a lot of things for you to do. Right? And some of you may be thinking, Tim, what about grace? I mean, Tim, we talk about here, and we do every Sunday, the finished work of Christ, the, the gospel that Jesus did the work that you couldn't do. He did it on your behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. Like, you're saying I got to do with my head, heart, and hands and get this action plan for change, and I got to walk in these new steps, and I got to change. What about grace? What about the cross? I think that's a tension we all wrestle with, don't we? How does that work together? How does grace and repentance tie together? Well, the first thing I would say is this. Many of us, we get that visual image of repentance and we think about the preacher pounding the pulpit who's really angry. And we think about the Old Testament prophet. Most oftentimes, we never think about Jesus. Right? We never think about grace. But you need to realize Jesus talked about repentance all the time. We're in a series in the book of Mark. We're taking a break from that. Two weeks, we'll pick that right back up. And if you remember, if you were here, Mark chapter 1, right from the get-go, how does it start? Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Jesus first shows up on the scene. You think maybe he's going to correct all the Old Testament prophets. Hey, those guys were really angry. I'm really gracious. Hey, just kind of lighten up on the whole repentance thing. No, first thing that Jesus shows up and says, repent. And he goes on to talk about what that looks like throughout the gospels. And so grace and repentance, Jesus and repentance, they go together. The second thing, we see an example of this in John chapter 8, the woman that's caught in adultery. Again, a familiar story that you may know even if you didn't grow up in the church. There's a woman who's caught in adultery, and there's all these people around her who want to stone her. Jesus comes along, and he says, hey, anybody who's sinned, throw the first stone. And as you can imagine, everybody spreads. Everybody leaves because they've sinned. So it's just Jesus and the woman. He says, hey, who is here to condemn you? And she says, no one. And he says, well, neither do I go and sin no more. Now, I think that's a familiar story. Maybe you just heard it for the first time. And we love that story. Why? How gracious of Jesus Christ. How loving of Jesus Christ to show up to a woman who's caught in her sin and say, 
you are not condemned. Like I have the authority to condemn you, but I don't. And we see that amazing grace, but here's what we miss. Second part, what does Jesus say? You're not condemned, but what? Go and sin no more. Like this sin is hurting you. I want to heal you. You're not condemned. There is amazing grace in the midst of your sin, but don't keep doing it. Don't go back there. There's not life there. There's death there. There's destruction there. And some of us, we miss one of those two parts, right? We miss the part of, hey, today Jesus says you're not condemned, but for the rest of her life, she's going to have to experience the process of sanctification, of repentance to see that change in her life. You think that's easy? You think day one, she's just like, okay, I'm leaving that adultery behind. And it's never going to come back in my life. If you've known anybody who committed adultery, you know that ain't true. You know they deal with that. It comes up as they think about those experiences. It comes up all the time, and there's a lifelong repentance. There's effort. So listen, as we look at the Christian life, as we look at repentance, this isn't about earning, but it is about effort. There would have been effort for that woman to leave that place and to sin no more. The sins you're struggling with in your life, and God right now looks at you if you're in Christ, he says, you're not condemned. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we can all receive that, whatever your sin is. We can all receive that and be amazed with that grace, but Jesus is calling you in this moment, but don't keep going back there. As you leave this place, sin no more, and that's going to take work in your life, isn't it? Tom Schrader, a pastor in the Phoenix area who actually has preached here a couple years ago, uh, passed away a couple weeks ago, and he was a friend of mine that I got to meet with for breakfast and talk about pastoring and, and church and all those types of things. He's just a great man of God. And uh, one of the things that, that Tom said that I love so much is everyone wants maturity, but no one wants the discipline it takes to get there. Right? And if, if you've ever heard Tom, if you remember when he preached here, the way he said that was the best because he just said what he wanted to say. Everybody wants maturity. Everybody wants to change, but no one wants the discipline that it takes to get there. Listen, grace, repentance, they do go together, right? But it will take some work to change in your life. It will take some effort, some discipline, not earning, but effort. And sometimes we miss that. Other times, we miss the sequence, right? This sequence is really important here. Sometimes we can think, okay, now maybe you're convinced, like, well, okay, I got a lot of work to do. Don't sin anymore. I, I get that. Repentance, grace, I get all that. But here's what you need to see as well. There's a sequence to this. Jesus did not tell the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, and then check back with me in six weeks, and then we'll see if I condemn you. He didn't say that. In the moment, caught in adultery, he says what? I don't condemn you. Now, don't sin anymore. That sequence is, is vastly important. Just like we can miss the effort and the discipline it takes to repent after we're not condemned, 
We could also miss the sequence and we could think, I could leave this place and I got all these things to do and I got this whole checklist and I got to watch and make sure I don't sin anymore so that God will like me, so that God will be pleased with me, so I can hear you're not condemned. And you need to not miss the sequence here. There's a position change that leads to a practice change. And that's always the way God works. You're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2. Why? For the works that I've prepared in advance for you to accomplish. Your position changes in Christ. He indwells your life, transforms your life. You are in Christ. God looks at you and doesn't see your sin. Instead, he sees the perfect, sinless son of God. And then out of that grace, you begin to walk in repentance. You begin to change. There's an important sequence. There's two important parts to John chapter 8. Grace and repentance go together. We see this in Colossians chapter 3 where you see this whole list of things that you're supposed to put to death. We, we did a series in Colossians earlier last year. There's all these things. Hey, put to death these things and then bring to life these things. Literally put on these new things in Christ. And again, sometimes we miss how that starts. Colossians 3 starts with, since then you have been raised with Christ. And then put to death these things, put on these things. Position leads to practice. Grace and repentance go together. That's how God designed it. Now, what does this look like? How do we walk in repentance? We talked about the heart of repentance. It does tie in grace. How do we walk in it? We're going to look briefly at Psalm 51. You can pull it up in your Bible. You can look on the screen with me. Psalm, middle of your Bible, Old Testament. We're going to see the how of repentance. To give you some background, this is King David writing this. Uh, It parallels the story in 2 Samuel 11 through 12, where David, maybe some of you have, again, have heard of David, whether you've been in church or not, and you think about David and Goliath, which was a big story in Scripture. The other big story in Scripture was not so glorious for David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only did he commit adultery, but he tried to cover it up. He did that worldly grief. He tried to hide it by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by having him killed. And you see this this huge example of sin in the life of David. And Psalm 51 gives us a picture of how he responds to that sin. You should read it, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You see the prophet Nathan come to David, and he tells him this great story of someone who's in their sin and who hasn't repented of it. And David's starting to get angry, and he's like, hey, tell me who this man is who has sinned in these ways and hasn't responded as he ought. And Nathan, in that moment, tells David, you are that man. And then we begin to see in Psalm 51 how David responds to where his sin is exposed. He gets some godly grief, and he responds. The first thing I want you to see is verse 1. David throws himself entirely upon the mercy of God. You see it, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Once we get the heart of repentance, and then we get to the how of repentance, you have to see it starts with laying yourself before the mercy of God. Think about David in that moment. His sin is exposed. 
He has to acknowledge it. His friend, his pastor in his life, Nathan, he comes along. He loves him enough to bring that sin to light. Some people have been like this for you in your life. That, that community group leader, that Bible study leader, that pastor, that friend, that family member who loves you enough to say, there's some things I'm worried about, man. I don't want to offend you, but man, there's some things in your life that don't match up with, with God and what he wants for you. There's some things that need to change. And, and that's the moment David is having. And he's realizing it's being brought to, dare, the, brought to bear the adultery, the murder, the sins even in his heart. The only response he could have there, the only hope he has there is the mercy of God. And it's the same way for you. How do you repent? You start with recognizing I have nothing to bring to the table. I need God. I need his mercy. I need him to not give to me what I deserve in this moment. You know what David deserved in that moment? Death. He sinned against God. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, who he didn't have the opportunity to go to repent to him because he was dead. David in that moment deserved death. He deserved wrath from holy God. And so in this moment, he recognizes that and he says, God, please have mercy. Listen, in your moment of sin, even if it's not adultery, you say, well, Tim, I haven't murdered anybody. I mean, I just have these thoughts and I just have these little practices all the time. Even in that moment, because God is holy, as we're going to talk about in a second, all you have, God, please have mercy. I don't deserve any of this. I do deserve what you could give me, but please have mercy. That's how repentance starts. The second thing we see in verse two, look at it with me. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The second thing we see is David takes ownership. He throws himself on the mercy of God and then he begins to take ownership. Notice the personal pronouns in verses two and three. Wash me, cleanse me. My sin, my transgressions, like some way, somehow, we have to get to a moment as we lay ourselves before the mercy of God, we have to get to a moment to stop rationalizing our sin and stop blaming it on other people and stop comparing it. Well, it's not as bad as somebody else. No, we say, this is me. I did this. I confess. It's about me. It's about my own heart. That David takes ownership, that when we sin, we take ownership. And that it's realizing that that's not a fun process, right? Have you ever named your specific sins in prayer to God? And not just said vaguely, God, I know I've made some mistakes and please forgive me and just, you know, I confess, I know I'm a sinner. Have you ever moved past that and said, hey, I gossip. I'm a gossiper. I mean, sometimes I try to think it's just because I talk a lot, I'm extroverted. No, I didn't tell that person that because I wanted them to pray for him. I told that person that because I just wanted to spread that and make myself feel better in that moment. You ever done that? How's that feel? Not great. Right? It's hard to even say it. Even if it's just you and God in the car, nobody else is around, it's hard to, to say it, to name the sin, right? Because there's guilt associated with that. There's shame associated with that. 
But, but in those moments, that's God's grace to name that sin. That's God's grace to acknowledge that sin. For David, I mean, we get to read this. All these years later, David wasn't just alone in his car naming the sin. You get to read it. Like he's put on blast for everybody to see. And yet it's still God's grace, right? Because unless we see our sin, unless we name it, unless we're stricken with that godly sorrow that Paul talked about, that we understand the depth of it because we call it out. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a regret, right? It's, it's sin against the holy God. It's leading to the destruction of you and other people. That's God's grace to you to acknowledge that. I remember several years ago, my wife and I, family lived in Austin, Texas, and it was early on in our marriage and early on with having one child and, and life was just chaotic and it was hectic. And I remember I let my health just kind of go. I didn't eat right. I was stressed out all the time. I didn't work out or anything like that. And I remember uh, one Sunday afternoon after church, I was sitting in a recliner and I was eating some ice cream. And I've got that ice cream and I had a towel under it. I vividly remember the picture. Uh, just, you know, just in case anything happened, you can't take uh, too many precautions when eating ice cream, right? And um, I'm sitting in the recliner, just picture this. I'm sitting in the recliner, I'm eating the ice cream, towel under it. I'm just enjoying that ice cream. And my beautiful wife about that time comes in the room and, and she wants to take a picture of her cute little husband eating ice cream. My wife loves to take pictures. She's like, hey, let's just get a quick picture real quick. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> like, please, No. And I'm like, okay. And she takes the picture and something crazy happens. We go to look at the picture. And I don't know that I'd done that in a while and looked at myself. And I, I'd looked at the picture and my first thought was, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I knew like job was kind of crazy. Stress was kind of crazy. Hadn't worked out and I don't know how long. And uh, physically wasn't eating right and all those things, but I didn't know it was that bad, right? And, and in that moment, I was like, man, this is bad. Like, I don't like seeing that, but at least I know what I'm dealing with here. And, and you know what I did in that next moment? I went to my room, I changed clothes, I put away the ice cream, I threw on some Nikes, and I went for a run, right? Now, Why? Something good was produced, like Paul talked about. Some repentance, some change. Like I turned from this way of living to a new way of living. But it had to start with some uncomfortableness, some grief, some sorrow, some pain of like, this is my sin. This is me, like this is what I've become. And sometimes, listen, God's most gracious act to you is to show you a picture of your sin. Why? Because he wants you to wallow in it? Because he wants you to just sink down in guilt and shame? No, because he wants it to produce a change in you. Because he wants you to be awakened to the ugliness, to the depravity, to the destruction of your sin. Why? So you'll start to pursue him instead of that sin. So you'll confess it and repent of it. Right? And so... We lay ourselves before the mercy of God, but we also take ownership. 
We see our sin as God sees it, and we see it comes from us. The third thing we see, look at verse four with me. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now you should pick up on something here. Remember the story, remember the context. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David had her husband Uriah killed. And yet in this moment, he says, God, you, he repeats it just so you know, you only have I sinned. Now, did David sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Did David sin against Uriah? Yeah. Now, why does he say against you and you only have I sinned? David is making the point, and we get the beauty of seeing the point, that sin affects others, but it's ultimately against God. Sin affects other people. There's consequences of our sin. It hurts other people. But ultimately, we can trace it back to our relationship with God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, the original sin, the first sin. God lays out all this before them, all this beauty, all these opportunities. Everything is perfect, naked, and unashamed, right? It's amazing, but there's some some boundaries to that. There's a way God wants them to walk, and there's, there's this tree, and he doesn't want them to eat of that. And they, instead of choosing God's perfect joy and happiness and gladness and purpose for their lives, they step outside of that boundary And they think, we know better than God. Maybe we'll take this. Listen, that's how all sin starts. It all is rooted in a lack of trust in God. That lust you commit, that pride you commit, that gossip you commit, it's all rooted in this idea that like, God, I know you've laid out some truth in your word. I know there's some ways I'm supposed to follow you. And you designed that, and like we talked about last week, you designed the whole universe, and you designed your word, so I should probably walk in rhythm with that, but instead of loving my spouse only, I'm going to venture off into lust. God, you laid out a way for money. You laid out a way to, to give money back to you, to steward it for your glory, for our joy, to bless other people. And I know, God, you designed that, and you created it, but finances are kind of hard right now. And maybe if I just had some other things like, like other people have, like my neighbor has, maybe, and I should go through a shady way to get that, or I should just work 70 hours a week to the neglect of my family, and we step over that boundary for what we think is best, and we ignore what God says is best. And so did David sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Yeah, he did. But ultimately, it was rooted in a lack of trust that God knew, knew what was best for his life. That's how sin entered the world. And that's how we experience it as well. And so the principle that we take away from that is in our repentance, we lay ourselves on the mercy of God. We take ownership of our sin and we confess to God. We recognize the holiness of God, that our sin is ultimately an offense to God. The fourth thing, look at verse five. 
Verse five says this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me away not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The last thing we see, the how of repentance, is that David commits to God-empowered change. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. Sin is my very nature. Purge it. Wash it. I can't just modify my behavior. This is deeply rooted in who I am. Take it out of me. Create in me a clean heart. That word create, same word that we see in creation at the very beginning of our Bibles. That we need God to create this. We need God-empowered change. David is saying he needs a forgiveness that removes the penalty and the power of sin. Look at verse 11. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't, Don't leave me, God. I don't want the penalty of sin in my life. He's committing to God-empowered change for the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Verse 12 and verse 10, renew a right spirit. Uphold a, a willing spirit. God, take away the penalty, but also take away the power. Help me to have the strength, the energy to follow you. So as we see David, How does he repent? He lays himself before the mercy of God. He takes personal ownership. He confesses it to God himself, and he also commits to God-empowered change. Now, for some of us, this example resonates. For some of you, this is a heavy sermon because you do have sin in your life that's gone unchecked for way too long. And maybe it's little things that have been building up that have become a cycle And you go to those things instead of going to God things. And maybe for some of you, it's way bigger than that. Maybe that adultery, that gossip, that pride, you can vividly vividly see those things in your life. And as you think about David's example, you're like, man, I need to start doing those steps. I, I need to come to a place where I realize the heart of repentance and start to walk in that repentance. And I would encourage you today, don't wait any longer. There's urgency to that. Your sin will lead to destruction. It won't lead to the pleasure you think it will. David's an example of that. And so some of us can relate to David. As we see this Psalm 51, this cleanse me, purge, this extreme language, you're like, that's what I need. But I know some of us may think, Tim, I mean, I... I'm not walking in crazy sin like that. I mean, yeah, there's some imperfections in my life, some, some little things in my life and some daily things in my life that I know need to change and get better. But maybe you don't feel the urgency of David's psalm of repentance. And what I would say to you is Psalm 139 says this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways in me, is that even if you don't have the catastrophic, glaring sin in your life, you need to take these steps of repentance just like David. Why? There's a couple of reasons. 
One, do you think David just saw Bathsheba and in a moment committed adultery, killed somebody else, threw his life away? You think that happened in a moment? With that huge dramatic event? I think there was probably days before that, thoughts that he let go. That's not that big a deal. It's just lust. Everybody does that, right? As he walked by Bathsheba and just looked a little bit too long and started to fantasize and little by little, little steps, little decisions shape a destiny. And so those little things in your life, even if you don't relate to David's catastrophic event, those little things in your life, as you see those thoughts, those words, those actions that are incongruent with God's righteousness, that you would say, God, search those things in my heart. Maybe today you're like, I don't know if there's a glaring sin, but you would say, just like Psalm 139, God, you examine my heart. You see if there's any offensive ways and begin to confess and repent from those things so you don't get to the big things, right? You don't need to wait till your life is destroyed and then think, oh, I should probably repent. I should probably go to church now. My life is in shambles. Don't wait for that. Start with the little step, that little thought, that little action, that little word. God is gracious to come to you in that moment and say, I don't condemn you, but, but go turn away from this sin and turn to me. And God is gracious to change you and develop you even in those little things. Martin Luther, old theologian, said this, all of life is repentance. Day by day by day, you look at things in your life and God's gracious to show you those things in your life. It's not his condemnation that he brings those things to to the surface. He's gracious to bring those things to the surface. So why? You can experience a godly grief that produces repentance. That's what God is calling you to do. So start wherever you need to start and begin to walk in this path of repentance. There's grace and there is repentance. God may be calling you today. God may be giving you the grace today of a Nathan moment, like David had with Nathan, where his sin was brought to the surface. And some of you are like, Tim, I've loved some of the other sermons, but this one is a little tough to hear. God may be in his grace bringing it through this sermon, a Nathan moment for you to say, this is sin. Don't keep walking that way. Don't keep going that way. Begin to walk in repentance. Experience God's forgiveness and be changed. We're going to take a moment practically to do exactly that. We're going to take communion. And as we take communion, it is practicing repentance. It's looking at a holy God who sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die for all of your sin, to take it upon himself, to rise again, to beat it, to give you victory. So you could say, even today, I'm free and I have victory in Jesus Christ, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. As you take the bread and you dip it in the juice or the wine, that's what you remember. And you begin to repent of the sins that you have committed yesterday, this week, the things God brings to mind. And you begin to be reminded of God's amazing grace that he would forgive you and he would change you. And so I'm going to invite you. We're going to pray and sing some more. If you would just walk down this center aisle, take the communion, then go down the side aisle, take some time to pray, reflect, and repent as we do that together. Father in heaven, I thank you for a couple hard texts and a hard example of David's life that we get to learn from. God, 
there may be some men and women here, and I know there are, who just, we need to be reminded of our sin. And I thank you for the life of David, that we get to have a microscopic look at his life all these years later to learn. And you, you've revealed your truth to us even this morning. And, and it's heavy, but it's helpful. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't miss this moment, that we come to church to celebrate you and to be glad in you and to sing about you and, and to be reminded of your finished work, but we also come to church to be reminded of the ways we don't line up, the little ways and the big ways. And this is our moment to take communion and and respond and even sing and reflect and, and to not continue to move about our life and ignore or hide or rationalize the things that are destroying us, the things that are robbing us, the things that are hurting others and ultimately offending you. God, you have more for us than that. And you're so gracious and you're so good and you're so loving to give us this moment to start walking in repentance by your power, by your word, in the name of Jesus. So God, I pray that we would do that. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray.